Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Today's podcast features Sebastian Evans of Naos Asset Management. Sebastian and Naos were profiled in one of the very first Australian Investors podcast episodes. So if you like small company investing, go back and listen to that. In this podcast, we're talking about Sebastian's and his team's shift towards private company investing. That is moving off the ASX and into companies that have five to $10 million of revenue and are private businesses looking to scale up. This is a fascinating conversation and Sebastian, as always, is really honest with us. It's a great insight into what it actually takes to invest in private companies, an area of the market that I personally find the most interesting of any that I come across. This is a really insightful conversation for those of you who think, why don't more investors target private companies as opposed to listed companies? As you'll hear, there are tens of thousands of companies outside of the ASX that are potentially investable versus maybe a few hundred, if you exclude mining and biotech, on the ASX. This is a fascinating conversation. Be sure to check out the show notes if you want to learn more about Sebastian and the NAOS team. Sebastian, welcome back to the show, mate. Great to have you on. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. I thought maybe we could just jump right into it. Um, When I saw that you guys were launching a a private um, opportunities fund, I thought this is really, really interesting. Um, For those who follow you and have heard the podcast that you and I did together in the past, they will know that you've always had this, uh, I guess, predilection for small companies, long-term investing, high conviction. Um, And so I feel like in the current climate, this is almost like a natural extension of that. Um, And so maybe, actually, maybe for people that haven't gone back and listened to that episode recently, maybe you can just explain the NAOS business and then we'll, we'll dive into the fund. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think I spoke to you must have been a few years ago. So it feels mm. like an eternity ago. But uh, yeah. yeah, lots changed, um, obviously. So yeah, NAOS, in essence, what we try to provide is a very unique exposure to small small companies in, in the stock market. But I think where, we, where we're quite different relative to our peers is you know, our, our definition of small is probably a lot smaller than others. So we own some companies that are only valued at 20 million why others, some might be valued at 200 million. So for many, that's really micro cap, but we call them emerging businesses. Uh, we run a very concentrated structure. So in our three licks, which are you know, NAC, NCC and NSC, um, there's only about 10 holdings in each. So we're, we're big believers in quality over quantity, which I'm sure you've heard before, but we probably take it to the next level where we're, we're happy to be. Um, and really only focus on what we believe are industrial type businesses. So. The thesis or the philosophy revolves around five five key points being um, we really look for founder-led or heavily aligned businesses with management where management are heavily aligned. So a lot of skin in the game is a term I'm sure you get all the time. Um, they operate in industries that are conducive of growth. You know, happily will tell you that I've made a myriad of mistakes and your mistakes are nowhere near as bad whether 
poor businesses, but in good industries, I suppose. So I think it's, it's for us, it's very important that the industry is um, conducive of long-term growth. Business has got a proven moat. It's got a competitive advantage. Um, we've got a very stringent ESG screen. We've got a, quite a large ethical following now. So I think people, everyone throws a word around ESG, but for us, it's probably more about positive impact. So either, either in your community or environment or in both. Um, and then the last one is, I've almost lost it now, is um, really about free cash flow generation or being relatively capital light. Um, you know, as I'm sure you would know, in, in today's environment, there's lots of businesses chewing up an awful lot of cash, um, but you haven't seen a whole lot come back to you. Uh, so we're really looking for businesses that can generate a lot of free cash flow um, you know, relative to their size, I suppose. Uh, and that's NAOS. So we started with, um, you know, raised the measly amount of $17,313,000 in February 2013. We remember it was like it was yesterday. Um, and then, you know, thankfully, we only had 400 investors and today we run $400 million across the three licks, across 8,000 investors, um, and really just focus on delivering delivering the outcome that our shareholders expect. Like it's, a, it's a very simple expectation process, you know, reason why we're here, and that's what we're focusing on. Um, and then obviously, we're launching a new strategy next month. Mm. So let's talk more about that. Um... I guess I'm just going to start with the easiest, like the softball is like, why private why? companies? Yeah. Why are you mad enough yeah. to go and investing in private companies? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, mate, I'm, I, I tend to talk it down a bit, so you might have to try and talk me up. But um, yeah, I think it's it's a hard one. I think, you know, for any fund manager, especially as they get larger, I think it's, it's very easy to remain, you know, we're not large by any stretch of the imagination, but to remain doing what you're doing. I mean, what we do can scale. Listed equities are easier because there's a market. Um, information is more readily available. You know, it's easy to invest in listed stocks. I think it's always been a dream or ambition, especially for me, Rob uh, and Richard, who have been here together for quite a while, um, and now more recently, Brendan, that um, that's all well and good. But you know, when I started NAOS 15 years ago, I've raised money three times in the manager. Um, and I know you run your own business. like. It's not easy to look for capital from the right sources when you need it, because um, that doesn't mean you've got a bad business. It just means it's a hugely fragmented market. So I can go to the bank and say, I need a $3 million loan. And I say, well, that's fine. Can you mortgage your house? It's like, well, no. So then all of a sudden, your ability to raise capital is pretty, pretty meaningless. Um, so we really felt that with our network of, you know, essentially a lot of our listed, listed investments, I had a call with someone today, you almost treat them like, private businesses because we do own 20, 30% of some businesses. So it seems like a natural extension. But I think the thing that gets us so excited is um, there's been so much attrition in small caps, emerging companies over the past few years through M&A and, and all sorts of things that we think the opportunity set in small caps is getting hard. Um, you know, it's getting more competitive. There are less quality companies and therefore people are probably investing in things and, and taking more risk than what they should be. Um, so therefore for us, you know, there's plenty of examples, but you know the private company opportunities for us seems very logical. Um, it's either go global or go private. Um, I think you know global's done very well by plenty of other fund managers, but in our view, private investing is not done well by anyone, um, especially if you exclude venture capital and private equity. There's no real boutique fund manager that you can get exposure to through to to private companies. So you so just 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 to reflect on that for a second, so. Yeah, sure. Saying that small caps are becoming more competitive, is that just a function of there being fewer good small caps, or is it also a function of 
there being more competition in the market from analysts and research houses and that sort of thing? Look, I think you know, some people might say I'm biased because I suppose of our investment philosophy. So we're not the ones that are going to invest in the next Zip or Afterpay or whatever it may be. It's probably, it's just not really our style. So some people might say, well, you're not looking in the right places. That's maybe a fair argument. Um, but I would definitely say, I think when you look at the type of businesses that are no longer on the ASX and you think of some, some, think of some places where you want exposure. So think of healthcare with revenue. So revenue, revenue generating healthcare companies revenue generating manufacturing companies, um, even things like aid, basic things like aged care. Like it's almost impossible to get a good exposure to those thematics. Um, like you'd be trying very hard. And for me as an investor, it's like, where do I want to be? And that's exactly where I want to be. Like people think of like home care as one of the next big booms um, over the next sort of decade or two or at least. We can't get any exposure, very hard to get exposure on the stock market. So um, for us, we think, you know, a lot of the good quality industrials have been removed from the ASX by people who can afford to take them private. Um, and therefore, we're left with probably more speculative businesses. And, and inherently, I think the thing that people miss is if you're a business, why do you list? Generally, you list because you want to sell out as a founder or you want to reduce your holding and, and I suppose crystallize that, that gain. Um, or you require a lot of capital. And that generally means that you require capital to pay down debt or your business is not making money or free cash. And therefore, for us, there are two reasons why you wouldn't want to invest in a business. So very rarely do you see a business list for the reasons that excite you and say, geez, I really want to own this business in an IPO. You actually included some stats in um, the slide decks, which I thought were really interesting to kind of speak to these points. And one of them was the, the fall in IPOs. So obviously you're excluding mining and energy with these numbers, which, which is good because <laughs> I, yeah. I would do the same. Um, yeah. So from 2017, we had 90 IPOs. Um, it's now fallen to 31 in the first half of 2021. And then if we look at, um, you know, the, the opportunity set, in public versus private companies. I think that's a really interesting dichotomy there too. Can you just walk us through kind of like how many companies are in this target market, like in your universe as private companies and contrast that to listed? Yeah, so I think when we look at, um, well, I'll start with listed because that's really the easiest one because there aren't too many. Um, but as you said, and as I was in the point I made before, like, you know, there are less and less, I suppose, businesses that we would invest in that are listing. So therefore, the amount of new companies coming to the market is less. You've then got attrition through M&A. So therefore, the net effect is you have less and less quality businesses that remain on the stock market. Keeping in mind that you've got to remember, like if you think of, um, I'll give you some great examples. So two outstanding small caps that were small a long time ago, Dulux Paints was small a long time ago, gone, taken over, very high quality business. And the other one, which we've never owned, amazingly, um, is, I don't know if you've followed ARB Corp, so they make the bull bars. I mean, I was looking at a report this morning, I think it's $55. Like I remember starting when it was $5. And, and they literally just make four-wheel drive accessories. Yeah, but one of the highest quality small, small caps, but no longer a small cap, it's a large cap. So a lot of the good ones fall out of small caps because they become too big. Um, so from our point of view, it only leaves us, when we look at, I suppose, you get rid of energy, companies that aren't making revenue, um, mining, which we don't include, that only leaves us with about 375 investments um, between $5 million and $100 million in, in revenue. Um, and then when you go even smaller, there's only about 67. Um, so for us, that, that might seem large for a lot of people, 
Ben, the point I try to convey is if you think of how many billions of dollars that are looking for a home in equity markets, the opportunity set relative to the amount of capital looking for a home is, is, is pretty tough. And that means valuations go up, obviously, as we've seen in stock markets all around the world and in the melter. If you overlay that with private markets, and I think you know, the thing that you should say, say straight away is that, let's face it, there are very few statistics on private companies because mm. the opportunity set is just so big. Um, but we think if you we use the ATO data, but if you found businesses between two and ten million dollars in revenue, um, of which they're actually businesses, so they're not like a trust or something like that, um, it's almost fifty thousand. So straight away, you've got a huge opportunity set. But let's face it, there's going to be a myriad that aren't investment grade for whatever reason. But even so, just through we've been starting. Um, before we launched the fund, we've already been having meetings for the last three or four months with private investments. And we've probably honed in on two that we would want to invest in when the when the fund launches in October. Um, and it's just it's just a different conversation, a different type of business. So there's plenty of businesses out there that do unique things to solve a problem that you and I would probably need solved. They've been bootstrapped by management and family and friends, but we've found one that's been done like that for 15 years. Um, and now they've, they've found a way they can get external capital and they're the conversations we're having and they're the type of businesses that we're, we're looking to find. So how, how do you go from the ATO data to kind of filtering them? Do you, do you just kind of, where do you get the numbers? Or do you, I know you use your network quite a bit. Yeah. Like a lot of them wouldn't probably you, necessarily be in the market for capital, I imagine. Or no. like how do you get that conversation? Yeah, look, to be honest, um, and this is this is probably the million dollar question. Um, the, the biggest risk to our fund, without a doubt, is idea generation. Um, and as you said, there's so many companies out there. Like, how would you even know where to start? And I think the, the sources that we've used, we've sort of given this a lot of thought. Is for there's four things because um, there's no silver bullet. So the first one is obviously our own network. So we have we own 30, 35% of some businesses. A lot of those listed businesses do M&A themselves. Um, so they've got a very good understanding of their respective industries and some very good private businesses, but may not necessarily fit their business strategy as a listed business. So we'll start there. Um, we've also used um, we've, uh, an investment advisory board. So we've got four, four people that we know reasonably well from a very eclectic um, I suppose background. So one, you know, FMCG uh, space is an example. He used to do a lot of distribution for some well-known brands such as Remedy Kombucha. Uh, the other one is big in the tourism space, someone in building materials. Uh, and then another one is actually um, runs a very successful financial services firm. Um, so that, that gives us another layer into industries and, and networks that we wouldn't have exposure to. And then the other two really are inbound. So people approaching us, and I think for us, you know, my ambition personally is, I wrote about this yesterday, is if we can make this successful over five or 10 years, and some people have done this well, you really want to be the partner of choice. Um, like when I'm looking to raise capital, I just don't necessarily want it from X, Y, Z. I want it from someone who I know that I can trust, who can help me grow, who can be a mentor, who's not necessarily going to ride me every five minutes for the next exit. Um, so I think if we can build inbound deal flow that way, and then the final way is advisors. Um, there are no shortage of advisors out there um, looking to looking to place deals. Um, but I, I would say we've just genuinely been very surprised with by the amount of opportunities that come have come within four months, um, especially when you compare it to the listed market. I mean, it's been it's been extraordinary. But I think we've had almost a hundred meetings in, in four months. 
and of those hundred, you, you've kind of you've honed it in on two that on two. could be, yeah. But that's a pretty yeah. good kind of strike rate for private companies. Um, how about in terms of like valuations and that type of thing? How do you how are you finding that the those indicative conversations would be going relative to the listed environment? Yeah, interesting because one of the people on our advisory board is very successful. He made, made the comment is like, in regards to valuation, you'd almost close your eyes and. and forget about it, especially in today's market. Um, so I think the way we think about it is, is twofold. Um, firstly, I think the way you can structure your investment, when people invest in listed businesses, they invest in, I'm going to go and buy a share and be an ordinary shareholder. When you invest in, in a private business, you have a lot more options. Like you don't have to be an ordinary equity holder. You can either give them debt, you can put your equity in via preference share or a convertible note. So it gives you a few more levers and say, well, I'm happy to be an equity holder at some stage. If X or Y or Z occurs or doesn't occur, then I want my money back or I want an interest rate. So it protects us very much on the downside, um, but at the same time trying to get the upside. So I think that's the most important thing we do is how we structure the initial investment. And then in regards to the second one around valuations, um, you're coming off a much lower base, like they generally tend to be smaller businesses. Um, so their potential to grow is a lot more significant than probably a larger business just from law of numbers. So yes, the headline valuation may look um, not that dissimilar to a, a public business, maybe slightly more attractive, but I think the valuation relative to the growth potential would be exponentially much better. Um, and that's what we're finding. So yeah, the multiple is not as, it's not like I'm paying, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, 20 times, 25 times EBIT for a listed software business and I'm getting one in private markets for 10 times. It might be 25 to 15 times, um, but the 15 times has the potential to grow significantly because it's a smaller business, um, you know, hasn't had, I suppose, the years to grow into that, into that multiple. Mm. What are you finding in terms of when you do your um, due diligence? How is that, I guess, different relative to the listed structures? Yeah. Um, look, the hardest thing about being a fund manager is people just will lie to you at some stage or a lot. Um, so I think it's your job to to try and weed out the truth from uh, what, what is not the truth. And, you know, I think in listed markets, we've, we've definitely improved on that. And I think a lot of that can be applied to, to unlisted investing or private investing. So the two schools of thought are, firstly, the information that we can get access to is significantly better. I mean, I think if you're an investor in a listed company, you can't go up to someone and say, um, well, in some cases you can, but you know, say I want, sure, I want your accounts, but I want your key supplier agreements, your employment agreements, your constitutions, your shareholders agreements, um, your strategy, business strategy paper, all these sort of things, um, all of your input costs, output, um, statistics. They're just not gonna give you that detail especially about granularity, but as a private company, they can do that because obviously they're not bound by the same rules as what, a, what an ASX company is. Um, so from day dot, your information that you get is just outstanding. Um, I think the issue is whether or not that information is real or not. There'll always be an element of, well, trust me, and it's up to us to try and work it out if that's real. And the way we do that is the same we do with our, in our listed companies. So it's about, sure, you talk to the source, so the owners and operators of these businesses, but, um, you know, you really want to talk to, it's like if someone wanted to invest in my management company, they'll go, all right, well, I'm going to go and talk to Seb's peers, his competitors. I'm going to go and talk to Seb's former employees, um, current employees, um, 
people that have invested with them, people that have invested but pulled out their money and get a real holistic view of what NAOS is, what they stand for and whether or not what he's telling is is real or not. And that's exactly what we do and we do it across numerous sources. Um, and it's never going to be perfect, obviously, otherwise we'd be doing much better than we are today. But it'll give us, on average, with Laura numbers, if we can get more than we can get more right than more wrong and the ones that can go right go up exponentially more than the ones that don't. Um, and we should be doing very well over the longer term. How about then, so how about then in terms of like realizing gains, right? So I imagine some of these companies might pay dividends over time, fully franked. Some might be, well, most of them would be fully franked, I imagine. But um, how about then in terms of exits? Because obviously one of the things that we think about is like liquidity in private companies and having a vehicle for that. I know that the fund is going to be like a five-year term, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, how about in terms of like realizing gains, how do you expect to realize them over time? Are they going to be IPOs? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So I think, yeah, many people that have sort of ventured into pre-IPO investing, it's called pre-IPO investing because they expect an IPO. I think we've deliberately not called this fund that because these will be private businesses and inherently a private business. The hardest part is um, getting an exit. So I think the way we think about it is, um, you know, I think the first one is how you make your investment. So if you invest in not just ordinary equity, if it's debt or a convertible note, where you can sort of, not artificially, but you can sort of secure your exit at some stage. So if I've given you a three-year con three convertible note, then at the end of three years, I'll be going to give you money back. We convert into, into equity. Um, but I think more importantly, a lot of these companies are looking for expansion capital. And as part of expansion capital, they're looking for an exit at some stage as well. Um, but, I, but I'm a big believer that it doesn't, it, it will predominantly probably not be IPO. Um, some will be, but I think there's a lot of businesses, bigger businesses out there that are doing M&A, they need to acquire to grow or increase their capability or service offering. Um, we've even found that a lot of businesses, especially founder-led, they're just looking for um, growth capital and then they might do a management buyout in a few years' time. It just gives them the capital they need to take to the next level. And then after that, they're looking to take back 100% ownership. And that happens a lot more than people think. Um, it's not like a once in a blue moon scenario. So I don't think it's like we're just praying that you know someone's going to take us over or we're going to do an IPO. There are a lot more levers to pull where you can be refinanced out or someone else can take over your shareholding, especially if the business becomes much bigger and better um, than your initial investment. Mm. I've always thought to myself, if I was a fund manager, I'd love to move into private company investing because I think it's just a truer form of uh, investing because like you said, you do have access to that information, which allows you to see what's actually happening, what's really happening. If you can get like proper numbers, as you said, not all of it's true. Um, so where do you expect over the next few years, the, the better opportunities to come from? Like, would they be kind of, you know, technology companies, like smaller technology companies or healthcare, construction yeah. any sort of feel for it so far yeah oh, that's, a, that's a good question um uh, putting me on Obviously the spot things oh, are it's going to change in time right? yeah like I think, yeah good. i think it is a this is going to sound like a, yeah, um, a, bit of a very broad comment i think definitely what we're seeing today is everything that we're seeing is innovating in some way uh, but just because they're innovating doesn't mean they have to be a technology company like we've seen some fantastic businesses that are innovating, but they're in the infrastructure space. And people go, shit, how can, I, how can I innovate in the infrastructure space? It sounds like it's been done to death. Um, yeah. But because there's so much money going into that space and it's probably been 
set in its ways for so long. There are just so many ways that you can innovate and change the work, change processes, um, even just how you maintain a toll road um, and where that information is held and the scheduling and things like that. So for us, um, you know, I think we're probably going to be, as I said, we're, we're focusing on certain areas. So I think our big ones, healthcare, aged care, we don't do anything around consumer finance and stuff like that. We'll steer clear. Um, infrastructure is another big one. Uh, for us, you know, we like tourism, especially domestic tourism. Uh, that, again, that's very hard to get a good exposure to. It's almost impossible. Um, but I wouldn't say there's a specific area where we think more um, ideas are going to come from. But I definitely feel like more people, especially entrepreneurs who are starting their own businesses, um, will start them in more traditional spaces but with an innovation slant. Um, mm. And I think you, know, you would see that from all the businesses that you see, people you talk to. And there's a lot more younger people and older people that are setting up in traditional areas such as tourism or whatever it may be with an innovation slant doing something differently and they've got significant potential. It's like we saw a, um, you know, I was telling someone the other day, like a luxury walking business that didn't exist 15 years ago, it's just walking around Australia, like, you know, in certain... Walking? Yeah. How does that work? Yeah, so it's like they get a lease off a, off a, um, a council or a state government and say... Um, like we know one that's been bought like in Mariah Island. Um, and so you want to go for a luxury bushwalk with your family and luxury tents or whatever it is for a few nights. Um, yeah, but we know there's, there's some out there that would make more than $10 million of pre-tax earnings. And people mm -hmm. go, really? Like a, like a walking business? Um, yeah. But if you think about it, coming out of COVID, it's like, well, no, I couldn't afford it. But like, you know, if, if I wanted to take my family on a luxury bushwalk in the Kimberleys or something, yeah, you can see why people want to do it. And I think the way, you know, things like that, I mean, I think there's some fantastic opportunities out there. You've just got to, just got to find them, unfortunately, and you've got to find a, a willing party. That, that, that's the other trick as well. Mm. Um, how about in terms of like, uh, like shareholder agreements and uh, how do you do, I think you've got in-house like legal. Yep. So is that how you do a lot of that kind of legal due diligence on shareholder yeah. agreements, you know, trusts yeah, and all that yeah, sort of it's, Gets a bit illegal and wordy. Um, yeah, so we're I'm lucky enough. So thankfully, we've got Richard here, who's been there with me for six years. So he was he was at Deloitte. He was our auditor actually. So he joined here six years ago. Um, so obviously, got excellent knowledge in regards to financials, audits, um, management accounts, things like that, systems, processes, controls. Um, and then Ra, Rajiv, who actually joined us from Magellan, who was their legal counsel, their legal counsel team for a while, um, and he joined us a couple of years ago. And, you know, that really gives us a lot of ability as opposed to just seeking external counsel. Um, as we know with our own agreements that, you know, when you're investing in a business, you think you're going to be treated like everyone else. Um, but unfortunately, you only know you're going to be treated like everyone else when you go through a shareholders agreement and constitution. Um, and we've probably learned the hard way a few times, but unfortunately, they're probably the most important documents that you're going to read outside of even probably more important than the financials is the shareholders agreement. So what happens if, you know, a great example is if, you know, say a company gets a bid um, and, you know, 60% say they want the bid to occur and 40% don't, and maybe they need a higher hurdle. Well, is there a tag and track? So does that mean the other 40% have to go along with the other 60 and things like that? So unfortunately, um, not everyone thinks the same depending on the circumstances and, and that can lead to some pretty awkward situations and hence why shareholders agreements there to protect everyone especially in a business um and hopefully we can do a lot of that dd in-house with, with raj mm. 
another interesting thing that I saw when I was reading through some of the docs is um, since we last spoke, I think it's since we last spoke, could be saying, it's been a lot of emphasis put on ESG um, and they've got in-house in capabilities in this regard too. How, how do you see, like, I guess maybe I'd love to catch up with you in a year after launching the fund, is like, how do you, how would you conduct that due diligence from an ESG yeah. perspective on private companies? Is it the same process or just, or even an easier process? Could you do have a better understanding of them? Yeah, look, I think it's important to say that, and not many people would say this, because I think there's a lot of fund managers coming out saying we're ESG aware or we have an ESG product. And thankfully, there's, there's more articles coming out now that a lot of fund managers are probably greenwashing and things like that. Um, you know, when we started this a few years ago, we, you know, we said we were very much ESG aware, but by any circumstances, we were not where we needed to be. Um, and because we have such large holdings in our listed companies, um, as you touched on before, that gives us great access to management and executives and even some of the tiers below. So we've decided that in regards to our listed businesses, and this will follow on to private businesses, is we give our listed businesses now a yearly questionnaire. Um, and it's not questionnaires on, I'm not big on stuff that people can't relate to, like, um, I don't know, is X, Y, Z in your corporate governance statement? Like, I mean, that's all fine. Um, but it's really stuff that I want to be able to relate to. It's like, how do you support your employees? Talk about your maternity leave programs. How do you support um, employees that might have, you know, a couple of kids or something like that? Stuff is quite granular. How do you support your community? Even you know, school, or not school sports, but community sports programs. It's quite stuff for us that, you know, we can relate to. But we also think it's quite meaningful. And then that also then um, revolves back into the environment and carbon neutral and things like that. So for us, um, you know, not every business is perfect, but what we want to see is an improvement. Um, we've been invested in some businesses that were nowhere near perfect and probably some would argue we shouldn't invest it in. Um, but five years on, they've come a long way. Um, and that's what we're expecting from our private businesses. They may not um, be where they need to be, but I think it's important that as long as they have the same values or similar values to us and they're looking to make the same improvements and ambitions in regards to these principles um then that's fine and then as long as we can measure those and agree on what the measurables are and where we want them to go um and that's all we ask for i don't think you're never going to find a business that's you know the perfect business in that regard but as long as everyone's making an effort um and moving the right way in, in and providing the right measurables and that that's all we ask for mm. so another thing i didn't know on that on that topic was that uh, NAOS is a has got the one percent pledge Yep. So, yeah, did you want to explain well, that? Yeah, so, you know, I think over the, over the journey, we've done a few things. So, obviously, we've signed up to the UNPRI more recently. Um, we've put our B Corp application in. Um, so, fingers crossed we can get that. Um, it's taken a lot of, lot of effort. Um, we've brought on uh, an ESG analyst as well. And then we've done the 1% pledge. So, we actually started this a few years ago, uh, which my CFO didn't like because we've never paid a dividend for the management company. Um, but effectively, the 1% pledge revolves around, so 1% of our recurring revenues goes to, goes to four charities now. So um, so I think we've given, I don't know what it is, but it might be close to three or $400,000 now. Um, I think once to Bush Heritage, uh, the Royal Flying Doctor Service in South Australia and Northern Territory, Kookaburra Kids, which is kids who are affected, um, their parents have severe mental illness. And the other one is Greening Australia. Um, and so that just allows us to give back into regards to, to those um, those charities 
And then also it's about 1% of, and we're trying to implement this into 1% of time and 1% of intellect. So allowing staff members to pick a charity and then go and support them in a physical manner, hands-on manner, as opposed to just um, financially, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, um, it reminds me of how Salesforce does it in the US. They have a 1% pledge as well, which is uh, yeah. time, time capital, you know, all, all that stuff. Um, yeah, which is great. Um, okay, so there's just a couple more questions I have about the fund specifically, which are um, how are you going to, how do you think about portfolio construction in this regard? Because I think you're targeting between is it 20 and $35 million to raise. And you've got two, you said you've got mate, like maybe there's two options that have kind of bubbled to the surface so far. How are you thinking about portfolio allocation like over time, but then also deploying that capital? Like yeah. Look, I think it's a hard one because I mean, it's in an ideal world, you wouldn't have the five year term. I think I'd be you know, upfront to say that um, because it, it almost, it probably places pressure on you to invest sooner rather than later because you don't want to make your first investment year three and then you've got to exit in year five. Um, so I think there's definitely a little bit of pressure to invest sooner rather than later. Hence why we started uh, before the fund actually launched. Um, it'll be, it will be a concentrated fund. $35 million is not a lot of money in private investments, um, but I think we're very much here to prove the model as opposed to raise as much money as we possibly can and just hope that we can prove the model because uh, that wouldn't be great for the brand or, or for anyone else. So I think you know, if we can get $35 million, which we're confident we can, and then deploy that across six to eight investments, we're thinking $5 million per investment. So based on the feedback, that is sort of what people are after based on what they require, how many other people will invest. So we may not be the only investor we don't expect to. So we may find an investment and we've got other people that could co-invest with us. So if the business is looking for 15, we might put in five and we can find the co-investors for the 10, um, which works well. Um, but because it is so concentrated, it'll be diversified by industry. So we're very cognizant of not having half the funds in healthcare or half the funds in uh, building materials or whatever it may be. So I think there'll be six to eight very unique uh, investments of which maybe two will be in the same industry. That's how we think about it. Um, and I think the other part is, you know, they're all real investments. So they've got to have revenue of at least $5 million. So it shows you that, um, I suppose it's a bit like this business, but, you know, we're, we're through $5 million. So it's taken us a bloody hell of a long time. But it shows you that you, you, have, you have developed a, a competitive advantage, hopefully, and there is a moat. And I think most importantly, especially for Brendan, because he's, he, he was a CFO of a listed business until a few months ago. It um, shows you that the business has got resilience. It's proven that it's, it's competitive moat um, and it will have the ability to, to develop over time, hopefully, as opposed to investing in something that's more of an idea. We leave that to the experts, of which there's plenty. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a $100,000 minimum investment into the fund and sophisticated wholesale only, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Not retail, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's probably appropriate given the turn and, and you know, the structure of the Yeah, look, I think, yeah, we definitely have thoughts about doing a listed investment company because all of our other ones are fixed. But I think for where we are today and how far we are, well, not how far we need to go to prove the model, I think it's just it's, it's, it's the right type of investor for this fund. Yeah. And can you just explain, like, basically the fee structure and all that stuff? Yeah, so all the exciting stuff. Um, hmm. It's pretty simple, actually. So 
raising 35 million, it'll be in a closed end unit trust um, where you'll get monthly NAV statements, so NAV updates, charge a 1.65% management fee, um, which is payable monthly, and then a 20% performance fee over a fixed hurdle. And the hurdle from memory really put me on the spot because it's changed. I think it's 5.5. Yeah, so it's 5.5, but the management fee then goes on top. So it gets closer to eight. Uh, seven. Sorry, oh, seven. It, it, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Seven, so um, yes, because it's post-management fees. Um, so yeah, fees are a hard one. But relative to what we've seen out there, we think it's fair. Um, and I think, you know, the other bit is, you know, these, these funds do... There is a lot of legwork involved in regards to investing and information, DD and things. So hopefully um, the returns offset the fees. Yeah. More, yeah. more than offset the fees. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think that's, that's worthwhile to point out too, right? Is that, um, yeah, I mean, the performance fees payable when the performance is there, right? So, yeah. And we haven't been cheeky. It's, there's a high watermark, the, the benchmark compounds, like it's everything you expect from a you know, a, a proper benchmark and proper performance. But. Yeah, because, um, and that's like, you know, in terms of like private equity partners and, and those types of things, it gets pretty murky with a lot of those guys, right? So. Um, yeah, yeah, internal rate of returns and per investment and all sorts of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so that's no, good. It's a really interesting business, mate. And um, I can't, I struggle to think of any, of, or if not business, but fund. I sh it's, I struggle to think of any that have tried to do it in such a way for combining kind of that higher conviction, longer term focus. Like a lot of the the funds will have, pre, as you say, pre-IPO in yeah. like a, in an allocation of like 10% or something, but few have, but they need kind of immediate exits because they're liquid yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Whereas this is yeah. um, something more long-term focus, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, look, it's... Look, I think, yeah, my view is, especially as a boutique manager, you do something, do it well, and it's got to be different. Um, and like I said, running my own business, I just think there's a, there's a big need for something like this. Um, there's a huge opportunity. You know, whether or not we can execute is to be determined. That, you know, we've got a good track record doing it in the listed space. You know, we're under no illusions that the private market's going to be harder. Um, that we think, you know, there's a huge market and there's the ability to scale. But most importantly, I think the other thing that's interesting is, a lot of it resonates with our investor base. Like generally most of our investors are self-managed super funds and a lot of them have run their own business so they can sort of resonate with them and say, look, if I want X percent of my portfolio in this in this space, um, you know, I do want it in, in small businesses that require private capital, but, but I can't get it. I don't know where to go. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So if people want to find out more, we'll, we'll, hit, we'll send them to um, the show notes and there'll be a link to register their interest. Um, and I think that the form there allows them to uh, check if they're a current um, NAOS investor um, as well. So you can get on the list to, to find out when the, the fund goes live. It looks like through October is going to be pretty busy for you in terms of you know, webinars and, and kind yep. of explore this more with, with investors. Yeah, we're doing two webinars. I think the first one's on next Wednesday um, and then the other one's halfway through the month. So the funds applications open from the 4th and then they end at the very end of October and the fund launches on the 1st of November. Um, so obviously we call all the capital up front. Um, we did an expressions of interest out to our shareholder base. The feedback was a lot better than we thought. So we're very confident, but um, yeah, as, as you said, I'll be, I'll be pretty busy 
um, trying to get what we're doing across because it, it's, it's not as uh, not as simple as the other three. Mm, for sure. Well, Sebastian, thanks for taking some time to, to chat with me on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah. No, thanks, Owen. Take it easy and um, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks again.